right, there we go. All right, so tonight, I, I, I do not think we're going to get through the book of Jonah. That's all right. We're going to talk about the Old Testament a lot. We can start, what, what I want us to do is try and attempt to answer verse 1 of the book of Jonah. Because if we can get that, then the rest of it tends to go much better. But what I want to do, just in terms of learning how to do language and read the Old Testament better, there's a sense in which uh, we read the Bible almost kind of like those small Gideon Bible handouts. You know what I mean? I, this is not a criticism. Don't worry. All right. Maybe a little. Uh, when, they, when they hand out, it's, it's Psalms and New Testament, typically, right? Now, the Psalms are key to reading the Old Testament well, to be sure. But what, that, what happens is you get to the New Testament and you're missing, you've already missed three-fourths of the story, right? And so some of the things that, that are happening with Jesus, uh, it's not that people don't believe them, it's just that they, they don't make that much sense. So Jesus being asleep on the boat, storm blowing up, and then causing the, the winds and the rain to stop, it's just like, well, that's miraculous, and he's God, look at that. The disciples clearly got that, but they, they were reading that in light of what had come before in the Old Testament, and they were like, oh, this is Yahweh. Only Yahweh does this, right? So when you hear people say, well, the New Testament doesn't really say Jesus is, is God, it's because they don't know how to read the Old Testament, because it's all over the place, right? Or I had a great question after church today uh, of why is bread used in the Lord's Supper? Right, we just can't take, if you grew up in the church, you just can't take that for granted. Like, well, what else are they going to put there? Well, you can put a whole lot of stuff. Why bread? And to really get the imagery of Jesus saying, I am the bread that comes from heaven, you have to know the book of Exodus. You have to know the story about manna and how God fed his people in the wilderness. And then when he's doing the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 and the 7,000, what's going on there? Well, he's like a Moses in the, you know, all this imagery overlaps. And what you're supposed to do is, is take it not as mere stories or allegories that are teaching you, like, how to behave better. So think about it. What is the, fee the feeding of the 5,000? How does that help you behave better? Give thanks before a meal? I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's good practice. You should do that. I, I don't think it teaches you that. It teaches you something about your God and the movement of history and what he has been doing for a long time. And what's more, what I told uh, the person, I said, you know, bread is important because if you think about it, uh, humans are incapable of self-sustaining life. We're incapable of it. So any given day, when you start to feel hunger, that is a symbol of your mortality, that you will one day die, and that something outside of you must sustain you. And that something has to come into you, has to go into, you know, blah, 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 all that. You just think through that. And it's dependent on the ground. It's dependent on the weather. It's dependent on being able to get the animals. You know, all that stuff, which points you directly back to the one who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. This is why, for example, and I got this uh, a few years ago by reading uh, prayers from the early church. And when you see how they would pray for the Lord's Supper, uh, in the, it's, the, it's called uh, the prayer of consecration. To consecrate is to set apart. 
And so we're getting ready to start, uh, I guess, the ritual formally. And so we're praying for God to use these elements in a sacramental way for him to use them as he sees fit. And the way they would pray is uh, something on the lines of Genesis 1 combined with all the Old Testament that would go like, Creator God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have given us the fruit of the vine and the yield of the earth. You have given us all good things, the bounty of life forever with you and your son. And you, you hear them tie the one who gives us daily bread together with the one who has given us life in the son. So I tried to explain that that eating that bread is symbolic of what you must have with God, that you must, as Jesus says, eat him, which we would call union with Christ. That's how Paul teaches that. You must be in union with the spirit. And if you don't have the spirit, you are dead. Right? So all these things work together. They associate right? You're supposed to go, oh, how does bread teach us about this? How does this teach? And in the, the morning men's study, we're looking out at how, for example, trees teach you something about God or thorns teach you something about humans because that's all throughout uh, the Old Testament. Think of Psalm 1, for example. It compare, we talked about this last time, did we not? Psalm 1 compares two kinds of people, one who's a tree planted Right? Didn't grow itself, planted by streams of living water. The other is like chaff, two kinds of people. Plants teach you that. And that imagery you're supposed to associate, it's, it's much better than saying some people are good, some people are bad. Is that true? Sure. Look at your call to worship. Let's talk about just that first line. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? What's that a question about? Any brave souls? What do you think? Let's talk tent. Where do you see a tent in the Old Testament? Tent of meeting, right? Who are they meeting with? God, right? It's not a like voters meeting. It's, it's right, with, they're meeting with God. Became the tabernacle, right? And by the way, the tent of meeting existed before the tabernacle. So they knew to gather with God in this way. Uh, holy hill. What is that? Right, right. Right, we're getting ready to talk through this with, with kings, right? Holy hills, ancient people knew, and this goes back to Babylon, actually it goes back to Eden, I think, uh, that God gathered with his people on a hill or a mountain, right? And as you go through scripture, if you read Genesis 1, 2, 3, initially you would say that's, that's not a mountain. I don't see it say it's a mountain anywhere. You have to keep reading. And you get passages like Psalm 15, holy hill, by the way, the temple has not been made at this point, right? We, we could talk about that with, uh, it's better, better is a thousand days in your court, what we just sang. You know, that, that comes directly from David who says, it'd be better to spend a day in your courts. I want to dwell in your temple and your house forever. Guess what? The temple had not been made, right? Let alone, he wasn't a priest. So he didn't get to go into the holy place or the holy of holies. So what is he longing for? 
to be in God's house with him, to be in his presence. It's glorious, and it's you know, more beautiful than anything he can behold. How does he get to do that? Because it's not like he's, this is wishful thinking. I can't wait till the day I get to. When he gathers with God's people. If you look at all the psalms, they're the psalms of ascent. That's them singing together as they're going to you know, the tabernacle or the temple, singing together. And they use psalms just like this one. Sojourn in your tent. That's, that's a walking, isn't it? That's a getting to live in your tent. And we think, I, we think of tent and what comes to mind? Pup tent, maybe? I don't know, camping? Like, I don't want that. You got to think tabernacle, tent of meeting. You get to be in God's presence. You get to live in his presence. Who shall dwell? You get to live there on your holy hill. And by the way, this is, it. This is how Hebrew poetry often works. Notice that it's saying the same thing twice in slightly different ways. In fact, we can go through, I'm not going to do this, but you can go through and see verse 2, who walks blamelessly, speaks truth, who does not slander, does no evil, nor takes up a reproach. That's really intensifying it. In, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors, that's from the heart and the mind, who fear the Lord, who swears, because language ultimately comes from the heart, uh, and then at the end of it, this, that's very practical, does not put out his money at interest. Uh, the Old Testament was not against banking necessarily. It's just they didn't have the capitalist forms that we do. And most people who put out money at interest were loan sharks. Uh, <laughs> does not take a bribe against the innocent. And who does these, he who does these things shall never be moved. That's longing for a heart from the new covenant that's filled with the Spirit. So you look at that, that imagery right from the beginning. And you're supposed to associate early wilderness wanderings, looking forward to the tabernacle. Where will it be? It'll be on a holy hill. And as we're going to talk about in Kings, people knew, let's go worship on mountaintops or hilltops. And this is why I would argue, uh, sorry, ancient alien TV show, uh, people did not make pyramids uh, because aliens taught them how to do it. Uh, Ancient people knew how to do geometry. Uh, they're pretty smart. And what they were doing was recreating Babel over and over again. It's why you see the same sorts of buildings being used for worship in virtually every culture. It's also, and I said this in, I think, you Sunday school, it's also why in that ancient you know, Near Eastern culture, whether it's the Sumerians or the Mesopotamians, whatever, they all got a flood story, every last one of them. They're all different. They, but they're all like, there's a flood. And what that event counts as evidence for is different. The Jewish one is the truish one. Is the truish, <laughs> sorry, uh, is the true one. Oh, I'm glad I recorded that one. That's terrible. All right. Um, all right. Let's talk Deuteronomy. All right. So book of Jonah. The reason we're doing Jonah is because it's a great warm-up for getting to the book of Daniel, which is much harder Uh, And the reason we're doing Jonah is because most people interpret or read through the book of Jonah having zero idea of the historical context. It's just a book in the Bible that reads like a parable or kind of a, you know, heroic, tragic, weird story that that people know it like they know David and Goliath. And we don't ask, what is going on here? Uh, What is God trying to teach his people through this? What kind of imagery is at use? Because there is some very particular imagery that is repeated and why is it there? Why, why does it say it the way it says it? You know, one of the things that you got to know, and I try and say this as often as I can, you know, ancient people 
you know, this is really before the printing press. I mean, paper or papyrus or whatever was at a premium, right? So they, they weren't writing, uh, you know, thousand-page books, and they weren't, you know, think of the Song of Solomon. I'll be easy. You know, they're not like saying, how should I recount my love for thee? Like, like Shakespeare, is it like a summer? Is it like, is it? They didn't have time for that. They didn't have the paper for that. So they used imagery that was quick and powerful and associated with other things. They're like, oh, it's like that, it's like that, it's like that. It's in the same way that the psalmist didn't say, who's gonna live with God forever? It says, who will dwell in his tent or sojourn in his tent, right? Be like, and I've used this with the morning study too. It'd be like if I said, there's a difference between saying, Jim Dunklin has got a strong constitution versus saying, Jim Dunklin is an oak. He's a redwood. Right? I don't know about the Constitution part either. But you, you see the difference? As soon as I say an oak, your mind goes to a particular place. What if I said, Jim Dunklin is like a shrub? <laughs> right? That gives a very different image that you can meditate on and think through. Right? That's the way the Bible tends to work in its imagery. It's very visual. So. Most people don't understand where Jonah is, and you have uh, several handouts which are very helpful, and if I were you, I would just fold them up and stick them in your Bible, or put them next to where you tend to read your Bible. Uh, this one that, that Warren handed out, oh, I need reading glasses for this one, uh, Kings and Prophets, it gives you a timeline, and now, let's just look at it. Does everyone have a copy of that? Sorry if you're listening at home and you don't have a copy. The one that says Kings and Prophets that, that, that Warren handed out? That one right there? Uh, this is as helpful as any of them. Uh, you can see, if you start in the middle of the left, and this is really the first time I'm, I'm looking at this, you see United Kingdom on, on that left-hand side. It says Saul, David, Solomon. Under Saul, it was still, the Philistines were around. They are still causing trouble. Israel wasn't completely. They're coming out of the period of the Judges, which if you've read through the book of Judges, it's insanity. Uh, happening, especially at the end of Judges, yikes, right? It's bad. Uh, under Saul, God starts to unite the kingdom, but Saul's a terrible king and ultimately fails, and God removes him. Then comes David, and this is the high point, really. It's starting to move. It's not the high point. It climaxes really with Solomon. It starts to move, right? And he unites the tribes. They're all together. Jerusalem come, becomes the place uh, worship is centralized in Jerusalem, and, but David is not allowed to build a temple like what he wants to do because he's a man of war and blood is on his hands, and, and that kind of man cannot be responsible for God's temple. He's not like the prophets of Baal, for example. So a man of peace, which is what Solomon means, Shlomo, which means peace, or, uh, oh, I just forgot the word, it doesn't matter. Uh, but he, he is the one who is set apart to build the temple. And Solomon is very much like a new Adam. I mean, just go read through the descriptions of him, and he's brilliant. Things are going so well for him until they're not. And he nosedives, and you know the story about uh, his heart being turned away multiple occasions, his accumulation of wealth at the expense of his people, his going to Egypt, which is a big no-no. 
So, for example, if you start reading through some of the prophets, and, the, and Jeremiah, for example, is, hammers them about looking to Egypt for, for protection, that's like a slave looking back to their master and saying, help me. You don't do that. It's a complete denial of God. Guess what Solomon was doing? He's like, you know, Egypt's got some fine horses, y'all, and they know how to make chariots. Let's go get them. Right? Because let's make ourselves strong. What winds up happening is clearly Solomon does not end well, though I think he's with the Lord. And his son Rehoboam takes on uh, the role of king, and all of Israel comes together. And Jeroboam, who we're going to start with, is one of Solomon's generals. And he was fancying himself as being a king. And they all come together. And the people say, listen, Solomon made our, our life really hard. It was really bad. And he did. He basically enslaved his people for his building projects. Uh, and, and they said, if you will just lessen what you're requiring of us. It'd be like coming up to the, the new, newly elected president and say, listen, if you will cut taxes from 70% to 40%, we'll, we'll follow you forever. And Rehoboam does the equivalent of like, oh, my dad... He disciplined you with whips. I'm going to discipline you with scorpions, is I think exactly what he says. So he's like, oh, you, like, you think 70 is bad? How about 80? And this has the effect of splitting the kingdom into north and south. And you look on, on your, your uh, outline there, there you see it. You see Jeroboam the first up there, and then you see Rehoboam in the bottom. So as you're reading through the prophets, this is where it gets confusing for people because some prophets are to Israel, northern kingdom. Some prophets are for Judah, southern kingdom, right? Or Jerusalem. Sometimes the northern kingdom is referred to as Ephraim, right? Which further confuses you. Didn't the Jewish people, they knew exactly what that was talking about. In fact, when you go through some of the blessings that, that Jacob gives, Ephraim is, is one of the ones that you, you will not lose it until you do, essentially, right? So as you're reading through the prophets, you'd be like, who are they talking about? Israel is the northern kingdom. Judah or Jerusalem is the southern kingdom. By and large, if you were reading through 1 Kings, once that split happens, the southern kingdom tends to do better until it doesn't, right? You tend to have kings like, say, Josiah, who rebuilds the temple and reinstitutes proper worship and you know, what have you, uh, that are pretty faithful, though they don't, they don't do as they should. They weren't quite like David, though David didn't do as he should either. The northern kingdom of Israel is just straight up bad, except for Yehu. Even, but even he ultimately gets hammered, too. And you start with Jeroboam the first, and you just, you just start running. And it's, it's a downhill slide. And so one of the questions before we get to Deuteronomy Jonah does not come in a vacuum. He's one of many prophets, right? So the prophets, as you're reading through, through kings, that are really going against the northern kingdom of Israel are guys like Elijah and Elisha, who comes after him. And they are saying, if you don't turn, you're going to get hammered. And God does all kinds of things like famines and no rain for three years. Imagine that, no water for three years. It's like, if I got your attention, and they're like, Nope, you don't, right? And this is a long time before the events 
of, of uh, the, the Northern Kingdom being carted off. Long time, hundreds of years, essentially, right, of God sending prophets to them. And Jonah is one of the prophets that is sent to the wicked Northern Kingdom. Now, the question we're trying to answer tonight, uh, and we're going to walk through a bunch of kings here, uh, and this, this may be like the one uh, Sunday school class type thing where we actually walk through a bunch of kings. This, I never had this growing up in church, ever. I was never in a church and seminary that did this. Right, so we're, we're going to walk through some of it. Uh, trying to answer that first verse of why God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh and why he says, I'm not going to do it. Let's look first at Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy 4. It's not a sword drill. It's not a race. Deuteronomy 4, beginning in verse 23. Before we even read this, let's ask the question, what is Deuteronomy? Second giving of the law. Deuter to nomos, law. Who is it given to? Well, he did. Moses did, did do it. But it's the generation going into Canaan, right? This is the second generation. The first generation died because they said God can't take the land. This is their children. It's the second giving the land uh, of the law. And so a lot of it overlaps. There's some new stuff in there too, which makes sense. And there's some warnings. And one of the warnings is like this one. This is, we're going to begin in verse 23. It says, take care, chapter 4, verse 23, take care lest you forget the covenants of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So stop right there. When was that covenant made? At the Exodus, in particular on Sinai, right? That's Exodus 19.20 around there, right? When Moses goes up for the people, that's a covenant that anticipates Joseph, not jo well, Joseph, you know, but Jesus going and making a covenant with God for his people, the new covenant. Right? This is why the New Testament often pictures Jesus as a new Moses. So he goes into God's presence. He intercedes for the people. The people say, yes, we want to be married to God. And he's like, awesome. Here's the rules of the marriage. To which they're like, this is so great. Meanwhile, back at camp, guess what they're doing? Made a carved image in the form, notice he says, of anything anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. So are there certain images they can make? Obviously. Yes. Yes. Just, just start reading in Exodus, what, 24, 25, and the descriptions of the tabernacle. There's images all through it. Just go read it. It looks like the Garden of Eden, right? There's lampstands. There's the altar. There's the utensils. If you look at what the, the, the curtains are supposed to look, all that stuff. Yeah, they can have some images, but none of those are images of God. That's different, right? So this is basically talking second commandment language, all right? But notice, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God, right? Those two things put together. You're going to hear that in the book of Jonah. Go read the book of Jonah again. God's wrath is compared to fire 
oftentimes. It's a burning wrath, a fire, right? Why? Because he's jealous. If he's, if he's married to you, Israel, he doesn't want anybody else. He wants you. Don't go running, right? That's the thing. When your father, let's, let's keep going. When you father children and children's children, so this is uh, your own kids, your grandkids, and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and be doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today because he can't call anything higher. Right? That's, that's calling out, I made it all, so I can swear no higher than myself, so this is real. Uh, that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord, your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. Uh, that's, by the way, the summary of the law. Love the Lord your God. Follow your heart, my soul, right? When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, it's worth asking, when's that? Modern Americans assume that's, that is yet to come. I hate to tell you this, they already happened. Uh, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. Oh, sorry, my screensaver. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. There's so much there, I'm not going to take the time. But I want you to notice the language. When you do this, when you start breaking the second commandment and worse, I will eventually, if you persist, give you over to you to it, and then I will scatter you among the nations. And once you're there amongst the pagans, and you figure out what have we done, and you call upon me, I will bring you home. So in Deuteronomy 4, you have God telling Israel what's going to happen, and it did. Right? It happened first with the northern kingdom of Israel by way of this country called Assyria, whose capital city was Nineveh. It happened roughly, what, 150 years? I, I can't do the numbers. Uh, to the southern kingdom, who basically wound up doing the same thing with this little country called Babylon, which leads us to Daniel. He was put into exile, and there he called upon the name of the Lord, and the people turned, and they eventually were given back into the land. Let's keep going. Let's, so you get the idea. If you persist in this sin, and notice it's very particular. The second commandment is they're trying to worship God on their own terms. And the typical terms were what, what looks like power to us. Golden calves, for example. Yahweh rides on the back of golden calves. He's, you know... In that culture, animals represented power. In the West, we don't use animals to represent power or, or God so much. We tend to use humans. So what you see in the Old Testament with the breaking of the second commandment tends to be with, you know, I don't know, bulls, cows, all that kind of stuff. In the modern age, 
tends to be images of people that Christians use to break the second commandment. And you've been in churches like that where they have statues and they have Mary or they have the saints. That's all they're committing. They're recommitting the same sins that Israel did. They just changed the dynamic, the second commandment issues. That's why we have no images of God in here. None. Right? That's why we debate using the Jesus Storybook Bible even because it's dangerous. Because we don't want people to start having a false image of who Jesus is or who God is because the text is visible enough when you start to read it. Okay, let's jump ahead. Deuteronomy 32. Because I think we're getting ready to be in a great position to understand what's happening in Jonah's day. This is Deuteronomy 32, verses 15 through 21. But Jeshurun, which basically is a nickname, it means upright one, it's talking about Israel, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. So just think of an overfed cow, just, you know, smooth, ready for slaughter. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. By the way, is God a rock? Okay, right, that's a great, he, uh, for those listening, Jack was pointing out uh, Jesus talking about the man who builds his house on the rock, right? G it says, the rock who made him. Is a rock literally God, or is God literally a rock? No, rocks exist to teach us something about God. He's strong. He's a foundation. He's not like sand, right? So he, for, he uh, scoffed, and in my translation, uh, Rock is capitalized, because you're supposed to catch. Rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. This all happened in the wilderness, by the way. This is at uh, the Baal worship at Peor in Numbers 25, and it was horrendous. Uh, they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded you hear how that's building like this is bad 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 you were unmindful of the rock that bore you do you see how that put two images together the rock that bore you or the rock that carried you and you forgot actually gave you birth and you forgot the god who gave you birth see all those images are working together in your mind the Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. That's a judgment call. He's not figuring out like, I don't know. That's a judgment statement. For they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no People, I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. How will he do that? He'll make someone who is not his people, his people. You see this happening with Paul in the book of Acts when the Gentiles start coming to faith. A people who are not God's people, who are not Jewish, who are being brought in through this huckster named Jesus, he gets 
not just jealous, but angry enough to kill. Right? This is why we're going to talk about this. Paul, in many ways, is a new Jonah and fits with the pattern of Jonah's life. We'll get to that in a minute. So, okay, Jonah knows these, these statements of Deuteronomy. He knows them well. I'm going to do this four minutes. Four minutes and we'll be done, all right? I promise. I should not have promised. All right, here we go. I'm just going to run through this fast, all right? This is the history of Jeroboam I to Jeroboam II, which, by the way, his original name was not Jeroboam II. He took that name, which was bad. It's like, oh, Adolf? Hitler? Yes, please. I'll take it. That's a great name. No, it's not, right? Nobody, nobody in Germany now names their kid Adolf, right? Maybe they do. I don't know. Here we go. Jeroboam I, that's 1 Kings 12. It's roughly 922. 933, scholars are divided on that. He reigned about 22 years. And so he comes to the throne. What's he do? We talked about this a couple of Sundays ago. He sets up rival centers of worship, complete with calves, like at Mount Sinai, and says, don't go back to Jerusalem. Stay here. I've got you. You don't need to go there. You don't need to worship like God told you how to worship. You could do just fine. He's with you. I'm his king. We're going to be just fine. He does this because he knows if people start going back to Jerusalem, they'll eventually turn back to the promised Davidic throne, and they'll, they'll turn on him and kill him. So he leads his people astray for the sake of power. And so, again, this is second commandment. He's saying, worship Yahweh. Here's how you can do it, and it's not according to how God commanded. Uh, 1 Kings 13, God promises to destroy altars that, Jero- that Jeroboam had raised up, and this happened almost immediately in Bethel. Bethel, right? House of God. That was set up by Jacob, if memory serves correct, right? So he's picking spots, whether it's Shechem or Bethel, that the patriarchs had been and set up centers of worship. So it's real, it, it, it's kind of like, it looks like Christianity, kind of like Mormonism. Sounds like Christianity, but it's not. It's not. Uh, 1 Kings 14 is the prophecy against Jeroboam and his house and what would happen to Israel, and it's not good. So then you get Nadab, who's Jeroboam's son. This is 1 Kings 15. If you want to flip, that's fine, but I'm going as fast as I can. Here's the first phrase. He did evil in God's eyes and walked in the way of Jeroboam. So if you read through that, it's like a drumbeat. That's going to be repeated over and over again. Baasha, son of Ahijah, of Issachar. This is a different family, so they revolted. That's 1 Kings 15. Guess what? He did evil in God's sight and walked in the way of Jeroboam, even though he's not of Jeroboam's family. He included additional idol worship uh, to that. Then you get Elah, son of Baasha. He was overturned by Zimri. He lived seven days. Seven days then took his own life. And then he was overturned by Omri, uh, 1 Kings 16. Omri actually really was trying to build the kingdom up. And you get this from what we would think of as secular historical records. In fact, for a while they called it, the outsiders called it Omri land. Not Opri land, but Omri land instead of Israel. Because they thought of it as like, that's where Omri is. And it says he did evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than those who came before him. Uh, that's 1 Kings 16. He set up Samaria as a worship and national center of Israel. So if you're wondering why, why do they hate the Samaritans so much? That goes back to this lineage. That's the New Testament, sorry. Ahab, 
uh, son of Omri, even more uh, evil than Omri. Uh, in fact, if you look at, we're not, we don't have time. If you compare Joshua 6.26, he rebuilt Jericho, and it was said when Jericho was taken, the man who rebuilds these walls in this place will do it at the expense of his oldest son and his youngest son. He will have to sacrifice his children. That's how evil that guy will be. Guess what he did? He sacrificed his firstborn, and he sacrificed his youngest for the sake of having that power in that city. Yikes, right? That's Ahab, right? Uh, you probably know uh, Ahab by way of his wife Jezebel as well. Not good, right? Uh, Ahaz, oh, I can never get it. Ahaziah, uh, son of Ahab, followed with Ahab, Jezebel, Jeroboam, worship Baal. They're, they're going straight down. Then Yehu shows up. This is 2 Kings 9, it's about 842. Just go read about Yehu. That dude is nuts. And apparently he was known by how hard he drove his chariots. So like people would see him coming like, oh my gosh, here comes Yehu. Watch out. Yehu was, was on fire. And he, he destroyed a ton of stuff. But he himself got a little arrogant, wasn't careful to walk in the ways of the Lord. We could keep going down through Jehoahaz, Jehoash. And by the way, every time you get these names, like Ahaziah, that or that or like uh, Elah or Basha or some of those, that's all related to Yahweh in a way. So they're all like friend of God or something like that. Then you get when you get to the Yeh or the Yos in there, like Yehoahash, Yehoahaz, that's related to Yehovah, right? Which is another name for God. So all these kings, as you're going through, you're not you shouldn't just be thinking. I don't know how they were able to fill out an ACT with those kinds of names. You shouldn't be thinking that. You should be thinking these are all people who are claiming the true God in some way or another and walking the other way. So you get to Jeroboam the second by 793. Where did we start? About 922. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, walked in the ways of Jeroboam, even taking his name, and he made Israel to do that too. And then you follow with Zechariah, Shalom, Manahem, uh, Pekah, Pekah, all these names, all the way down till you get to the fall of Israel in 2 Kings 17 under Assyria in 722. So let's think about that's roughly 200 years. And over the course of those 200 years of consistent, you know, these, these aren't people who are just making mistakes here. They are dead on set against God and they are walking in deep sin. God sends prophets to him. He does things like famines, blah, 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 all that. Would you say that God was patient? Yes. It's about as long as America has been around. Right? He was patient with his people. Do you think Jonah knows his history? Do you think Jonah knows his law? So when God says, get up and go to that great city of Nineveh, and he says, nope, do you think it's just because he hates Assyrians? I don't think so. I think he knows what's happening. Judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. And he loves his people despite their sinfulness, and he doesn't want this to happen. And as you go through the text, Jonah gets angry twice right and at one point what does he say 
I knew you were gracious and kind. I hate you for it. Who's he being gracious and kind to? A people who are not his people, which means the judgment's coming for his own people. Right? So this sets the stage. Oh, I went way over. I lied. I'm sorry. This sets the stage. Next week, I promise, we're going to start verse 1 and go all the way through it. Go all the way through it and see if we can start to make out this imagery and what's happening with this book of the Bible that is not merely a parable involving a great fish or a whale or whatever you want to say that is. Any questions or comments? I've kept you a long time on that. That's probably the last time for another 10 years I'm going to walk through the Kings, right? Yes, this will be on the Internet. That's great. You're right. Any questions or comments? Yes. 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 So the question was, uh, looking at the book of Judges, and we started off by talking about the language of Genesis 3, or Genesis 1, that God saw what he had made and that it was good, and that's judgment language. And, you know, Eve saw, saw that the fruit was good. That's the judgment. In the book of Judges, what's repeated over and over again is they did what was right in their own eyes. Is that judgment language? And it is. You know, you see, we were talking about this uh, in uh, Sunday school this morning, that I had heard a comment while we were at Monroe Academy that the regional basketball tournament was going to be held at Fort Dale Academy. And someone from Monroe said, oh, they are the worst. They are the most obnoxious people ever. I hate going to that school. Those people, oh, my God. And it was like, you go to Fort Dale, don't you? Like, here we are, right? Everyone is right in their own eyes. It's a self-righteousness. And you hear that, and we're like, what? We're awesome. We're so much better than those people. We all know the real enemies are. <laughs> right? That's how this works. I can't say it. It's going to be recorded. That's not going on the Internet. Right? That's how that works. We are right in our own eyes. Our judgments are not according to God's law or his delight. They're according to our sinful natures and our desires, which is what we were talking about in the catechism question. So that's a great one. Yeah, that's how you should read that. Anything else? Right. It's if you if you go through some of those those genealogies, he's not included. Jeconiah is not there. So that, those the question was asked this morning, like how on earth did they know all these names? Well, the Hebrew people were incredibly literary, 
you get the Western culture really should look to the Jewish people for how literary we are. They kept such detailed records, particularly of births. And you think about it, the reason for it is they're looking for the Messiah. They know that the one is coming through them, even when they're wicked. So they kept incredibly detailed records, even with the Bible itself and the, the Masoretic text, which is what the Old Testament is referred to. When those scribes were going through, if they made one mistake, like one little you know, jot or you know, tittle there, they'd throw out the whole scroll because they were fearful that heaven and earth would be moved by their sin. Sound like Jesus, right? He has a statement like that. And it's, they took that manuscript so seriously. It's why we have such incredible records of the Hebrew text. I mean, it goes way back. And that, that goes well before the exile, and they were treating it that way. But yeah, it's, it's fascinating with some of that stuff. You're right. All right, why don't we quit at that? It's 619 by my, my reckoning. Uh, why don't I pray for us, and we will take off. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the witness of Jonah and how we are, well, we are the descendants of people like the Ninevites that you have included into your kingdom. We give you thanks for your grace and your blessing to us, for you are good, and your steadfast love endures forever. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.